Que pasa Mufasa? Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast, a podcast about people solving problems with mushrooms. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. Today on the pod, we've got world-renowned molecular mycologist, fungi photographer, prolific contributor to iNaturalist and the shroomery, and all-around citizen scientist extraordinaire, the mushroom man, the Jungian myth, the legend himself, Alan Rockefeller. This man even has named and described dozens of mushroom species that were previously unknown to science. He's traveled the world in search of rare fungi, and boy, has he found what he is looking for. Some of Alan's contributions to the world of mycology include describing and documenting over 15 different species of bioluminous mushrooms in the mountains of southern Mexico, collaboration on five different peer-reviewed mycology-related articles in scientific journals, despite not ever having gone to college himself. And perhaps most importantly, he's been a prolific champion of citizen science in the field of mycology and a contributor to iNaturalist with almost 20,000 observations, 4,300 different species documented, and almost 15,000 identifications to his credit on the forum. His expertise in the field of mycology has been recognized by the Smithsonian, the Washington Post, Vice, Scientific American, Newsweek, and many, many more outlets. And today, he's going to drop knowledge on his journey into the upper strata of mycopreneurism. So let's get this show on the road. K. Pasa Mufasa, Alan Rockefeller. Welcome to Mycopreneur. Hey, good to see you. So you have a soft spot in your heart for the incredible mycodiversity in Mexico. You've published and presented extensively on the mushrooms of Mexico, led tours down there, and discovered numerous new species that were previously unknown to science. When did you first start going down to Mexico to research and document mushrooms? Uh, first time I went for mushrooms was 2007. And I missed this year, but this is the first year I've missed since then. I saw that last year you led a group expedition down to the Feria de Hongos in Oaxaca, which is their world-renowned annual mushroom fair in the state of Oaxaca, Mexico. Are you planning to lead more of these types of mushroom tours in Mexico or elsewhere in the future? Uh, yeah, seems, seems likely. Um, you know, it was kind of difficult for a few reasons. Um, like we hired a driver and he didn't really like all the mud and the bumpy roads and stuff like that. Um, so we definitely want like a better vehicle. Uh, but other than that, it was, it was pretty cool. Uh, we, you know, we saw a lot of stuff. What are some of your favorite places in Mexico to research and document mushrooms? I think my favorite parts are Jalisco, Querétaro, and Veracruz. Have you explored the mushrooms of Chiapas? Yeah, I've been to Chiapas uh, twice. Uh, both of the times I went to a place called Ocacuzotla de Espina. Um, it's uh, where they have, uh, it's a park called Laguna Belgica, which is where they discovered uh, Psilocybe Moseri. Up in the highland region of Chiapas, where I live, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of different types of mushrooms that grow in the forests around us. But interestingly enough, there seem to be no psilocybes that grow here. There's no local indigenous tradition with them. I've never heard of someone identifying a psilocybe up here in the highlands, even though they grow in abundance at comparable altitudes in other areas of Mexico, like the Sierra Mazateca range of Oaxaca. Have you ever discovered any psilocybes growing in the highland regions of Chiapas? Not in the highland regions of Chiapas. Um, I've seen them at higher elevation areas in Veracruz, uh, but most commonly in Estado de Mexico and uh, Puebla. 
um, around there. There's a lot, and to a lesser extent, Michoacan. I was surprised to find out how many different mushroom fairs there are across Mexico during the rainy season. I was familiar with the Oaxaca Mushroom Fair, but recently discovered that there are similar celebrations of mycology and mushroom lore that take place in Michoacan, Jalisco, Puebla, Veracruz, and elsewhere. I've been a fan of your mushroom photography for a number of years. Anyone not following Alan on Instagram or on Facebook, drop what you're doing and follow his accounts now, which is simply Alan underscore Rockefeller on Instagram and Alan Rockefeller on Facebook. Via one of your posts, I came across a term that I wasn't super familiar with, molecular mycology, which ties into DNA sequencing of mushrooms. For us uninitiated rubes, can you drop some knowledge on what molecular mycology is all about? Well, I first got into the microscopy because uh, I wanted to discover new species of mushrooms. And I got a microscope in around 2007. Um, but it turns out like everything that I put under the microscope, it seemed like it was exactly what I thought it was going to be. And that's because uh, most closely related species of mushrooms are the same under the microscope. So, um, you know, every scientific paper I would read about mushrooms had a component with uh, DNA analysis. And so I started asking people if that's something I can do at home. And everyone's like, yeah, totally. You can, you can definitely do that at home. So I started uh, gathering the equipment. And, um, and so now I have a PCR machine, the pipettes and gel electrophoresis stuff. So it's, uh, it's pretty easy to do it at home, but basically every mushroom has a molecular fingerprint. And so you can just find a mushroom and turn it, in, uh, turn it into like a text file you know, a little text file that's a barcode that's unique to each species. So then you can uh, compare these text files, see where else in the world this mushroom has been found, see uh, if it matches other known species or what it's closely related to. Um, so when you start doing that, you, you notice that like, you know, half the mushroom mushrooms in Mexico are very likely new species. It's mind-boggling that so much of this field of mycology and so many of the wild mushrooms around the world are still unexplored by science. I just learned about the proliferation of fungi in Yunnan, China, from a recent podcast with filmmaker and photographer Stephen Axford, who's been out there four times for shoots. There are over 900 different types of mushrooms that they eat there, and there are entire markets and even villages dedicated to mushrooms. Current estimates put the global number of, quote, known to science mushroom species at over 100,000, and there are likely tenfold or twentyfold that waiting to be discovered and described in the modern parlance. There's even abundant fungal diversity in deep ocean vents and in places like Antarctica. And it's citizen scientists like yourself who are leading the mushroom revolution and bringing these previously unidentified species into the scientific canon. But interestingly, there's a virtual blackout of dedicated mycology undergraduate programs and traditional academic courses that focus on this immensely important and urgent discipline that is revolutionizing everything from materials and fabrics to food, to healthcare, to space exploration, to decolonization processes, and so much more. Do you foresee more universities and academia at large embracing mycology and starting to offer courses that focus on mycology? Uh, I don't know much about universities. Um, I just go there for like, you know, a few hours to hang out. I've never like attended one or anything. Um, but it seems like, uh, yeah, mushrooms are definitely getting more popular. So people will probably, uh, they'll probably be starting to offer more stuff. So last year you went down to Ecuador to research and photograph mushrooms. 
What were some of the highlights of that trip? Um, Ecuador was really cool. There was a, a lot of stuff there. Um, the place that I went was like not high elevation, but not low elevation. It was about a thousand meters, so somewhere in between, um, which gave it a, a lot, a really cool habitat. Um, so I got several species that were glowing in the dark. Uh, some of them were pretty bright, so that was really cool. And also um, there was the Psilocybe moseri uh, that I found almost right behind a waterfall uh, in Ecuador. I read somewhere that you've discovered and cataloged something like 17 different types of bioluminous mushrooms. How many different types of bioluminous mushrooms have you introduced to science? There's a lot. I haven't really counted them, but um, that, something like that, yeah. Um, but, you know, just seeing them once is, you know, one thing and then collecting them a bunch of times and publishing them as something else. What kind of camera setup and gear are you using when you're out in the forest taking these sensational photographs of bioluminous fungi? Uh, yeah, I use the same camera for everything. Um, most of my pictures are a Nikon Z7 with the 105 millimeter uh, Nikkor macro lens. Um, so it's pretty good, uh, especially for like small mushrooms. And then recently I've started using microscope objectives. Um, so I'll connect the microscope objective directly to the camera. And that gives a whole lot more magnification uh, than, um, than a macro lens. So I can like take, find a really tiny mushroom and just make it fill the screen with incredible detail. Um, so that's pretty fun. Um, as well. And then just uh, last night at about three in the morning, I ordered a new carbon, <clears throat> carbon fiber tripod. So um, that'll be nice because it's kind of lightweight and super solid. A lot of people in the world are still unfamiliar with what mycology actually is and what a mycologist does. How do you explain to people what it is you do? Oh, I mean, mycology is a huge field. There's so many different things. Uh, most of the money is like in plant pathogens and uh, stuff like that. It's generally pretty boring. Uh, but I'm not too interested in plant pathogens. Um, most of what I do is mushroom hunting. And so I'll go out and collect a bunch of mushrooms and then come, come back and study them. So I'll collect a bunch of mushrooms and then uh, bring them back and uh, do microscopy and DNA sequencing. And my main goal is out exactly what it is that I photographed out there and get it into the uh, citizen science databases. So there's like permanent biodiversity records uh, for all this stuff. <clears throat> and that way I, I know what to call all my photos. I see your name all the time on iNaturalist and on the Shroomery and you're dropping so much concrete, scientifically sound knowledge that is so useful and accessible to amateur mycologists like myself. Thank you so much for your contribution, the invaluable service that you've rendered there. You're based in Oakland, California. I graduated from the University of San Francisco, so I spent five years in the Bay Area. There was an urban legend that psilocybin mushrooms grew on the wood chips around the police stations in San Francisco. Can you confirm or deny this rumor? Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's not just the police departments. I don't think they're any more or less common in the police departments as they are in campus or campuses or anywhere else. Uh, but anywhere they put down wood chips, especially uh, if they irrigate, then, <clears throat> then there will be psilocybin mushrooms. And, uh, you know, they certainly landscape police departments with wood chips. So, yeah, they're there. I actually discovered a huge patch of orange mushrooms on some wood chips on campus at USF. I picked a number of them and preserved them in honey to try to figure out what to do with them. I was unfamiliar with iNaturalist at that point. 
and certainly also unfamiliar with molecular mycology. And when I went back the next day to show the patch to a friend, someone from the campus grounds crew had burned the mushrooms. They were still there, but were, were literally charred to a crisp in a controlled burn. And I found that very disheartening and almost sort of representative of the establishment's mycophobia. That's crazy. I've never heard of that. I read in an interview you did with Vice that you say, there's no money in mycology. And in this huge cultural shift and embracing of mushrooms that we're seeing, of course, you've been intensely devoted to the study of mycology for two decades at least. Now there's this sort of gold rush around mushroom products, from materials and packaging to mushroom leather to national defense even, cosmetic appliances, the list goes on and on. Do you still feel that there's no money in mycology? Uh, it really depends on what you're doing, but there's definitely more this year than, uh, than in years past. Um, there's a lot, you know, a lot more people are interested in mushrooms, so there's kind of more, more uh, money in the, the money side of it. And uh, then there's a whole lot of psilocybin startups that are trying to uh, figure out how to sell, uh, <clears throat> you know, psilocybin for like, usually for uh, medicinal use. So, um, so I'd say, yes, yeah, it's, it's getting more promising quickly. It's crazy to see the mainstream recognition of mycology and in specific, as you say, around psilocybin. I mean, ESPN is publishing articles about psilocybin research in relation to UFC fighters and potential treatments for traumatic brain injuries. BBC, Vice, NPR, the World Economic Forum, Fox News, everyone's talking about psilocybin and magic mushrooms. It's unbelievable how different the climate is around this topic from just a few short years ago. Who are some of the people in the world of mycology who are personally inspiring to you? Um, I think uh, <clears throat> one person that's helped me out a lot is uh, Todd Osmondson, and he teaches over at uh, University of Wisconsin La Crosse, and uh, does a lot of DNA sequencing stuff. And <clears throat> back in like 2012, he was like working over at UC Berkeley, and I was giving him mushrooms to sequence, and it would take him like six months to sequence them. And he asked. Uh, I asked him, like, hey, does it really take six months to sequence a mushroom? And he's like, no, it takes two days, but we're really backed up in the lab. And so I asked him if he wanted uh, any help in the lab, and he said, sure. So I was, um, started helping him out in the lab, and I learned a lot of stuff that way. Um, another person that's uh, really good is Brian Perry. Um, he's over in uh, some East Bay college, I think maybe CSU East Bay or something. Uh, he studies Mycena, and then you have like Dennis Desjardins, Elsa Valinga, Christian Schwartz, Noah Siegel, um, Brian Matheny, uh, Brendan Matheny, um, maybe Matt Smith at University of Florida. Um, there's a lot of people, um, those are all academic people, a lot of people doing really good stuff. When did you first get into mycology? Yeah, it was, um, it was like Christmas Day of 2001, I went out hiking in Redwood City, California, and it was like a pretty good mushroom season that year and there's mushrooms everywhere. And I'm just like, wow, these things are really interesting. I, I wish that there was, uh, I'm think, thinking like there must be people out there somewhere that know what these all are and know which ones are cool and rare. Uh, but I didn't really know how to get in touch with those people back then. Uh, but I started taking pictures of them and just, just uh, paying a little more attention to them. And when I saw them, just pick them up and look at them more closely. Um, and the more I did that, the more interesting they became. 
Now, you live in a place where there's an abundance of mushrooms in the wild. The Bay Area and Northern California in general. We've also discussed your forays in Mexico and Ecuador. Without giving away any GPS coordinates or anything, what are some of your favorite places to go hunting for wild mushrooms? Um, you know, it really depends on the time of year. Um, there's nowhere that's always, uh, you know, where mushroom season is always good, though the season is shorter in some places than others. Uh, sometimes, you know, the places with the short seasons are better because all the mushrooms, you know, they grow all year, but then they all have to fruit all at once. So it's all packed into just like one or two months. Um, so, you know, anywhere can be pretty good as long as there's trees and rain. Um, but this, this past year in 2020, I spent a couple months in Michigan and that was really cool. I want to go back there more. Um, they have an event called Midwest Mushroom Camp the last weekend of September. It's really good. Um, then I was in the Upper Peninsula, Michigan for a while. That was really cool. And I went to Vermont. That was, um, there was good stuff there. Um, and then Washington is, is really good in like October. Um, <clears throat> and then Oregon's really good in November. California is really good in December. Uh, like Southern California, uh, usually January, February. Um, and, you know, then Colorado and Arizona are really good in August and sometimes early September um, if the monsoons come. Uh, Southern Mexico is really good June through October. Um, Ecuador is really good December through March, uh, sometimes like April. Um, you know, there's a lot of places that are, are really good like around August, September, like the whole of Canada, Alaska, um, you know, Northeast United States, uh, Southeast, Caribbean, Midwest. Um, there's a uh, you know, it's like you're on to August, there's like, you know, being pulled a thousand different directions. Um, but, you know, a really good thing to do is to go on iNaturalist and put on a filter for fungi, and then you can just uh, go around to anywhere in the world and see where the season is good. Um, so, you know, I do a lot of identification on iNaturalist and Mushroom Observer, and that helps me see what's going on anywhere. Um, but what I'll do is like, if I'm thinking of maybe going to Arizona, I'll just uh, pull up all the mushrooms that have been found in Arizona recently. And if I'm able to identify the last 30 mushrooms that were found in Arizona in like under five minutes, then it's obviously not very good and I don't go there. But if it takes me like an hour and I only get through like 12 hours worth of mushrooms because people just report stuff left and right, um, then it's definitely worth a trip out there. And also I just kind of look and see the condition of stuff. Like if, if things are all dried out, you can tell that, you know, there's only like polypores and stuff or dried out amanitas then it's not really worth going, but if there's like mushrooms that are just starting to sprout and they look, um, you know, like, like really healthy and robust, and then you check the forecast and there's rain on the way, then it's definitely worth planning a trip. I'm so stoked to be based in Mexico and I'm especially excited for the rainy season here when an extraordinary diversity and abundance of wild mushrooms become commonplace throughout much of southern Mexico. During the last rainy season here in Chiapas, I was thrilled to discover that the local indigenous markets would pretty reliably carry wild foraged lobster mushrooms. Also large yellow mushrooms called yuyos locally, which I'm not actually sure what species they are, but they are delicious. Also huitlacoche, the corn fungus. And I know that in other regions of Mexico, they have indigenous markets with far greater selections of wild foraged mushrooms during the rainy season. There's no shelf life on many of these mushrooms, so you buy them and they prepare them for you on the spot in many cases. 
Have you discovered any exotic culinary fungi and the indigenous markets throughout Mexico that you're particularly fond of? Yeah, there's a lot of good uh, mushrooms in the markets. Um, you know, not in all of Mexico, but if you go to Mexico City, anywhere between Chiapas and Mexico City um, is where there's a pretty good uh, culture of eating mushrooms. So like all over Puebla, Veracruz, Oaxaca, um, you know, a lot of the markets have wild picked mushrooms and, you know, something people can do without a lot of monetary investment. They can just go out to the forest and pick mushrooms and sell them. Um, it's also a very sustainable way to make, uh, make food because if you like clear land to grow, uh, grow crops, then you got to cut down all the trees and everything. Whereas if you cut down the trees, then the, the mushrooms don't, don't come back for one or 200 years. So it's, um, it's, um, it's a good thing that people are eating all these mushrooms. Um, I like a lot of the amanitas. Um, you know, there's a lot of species of amanitas, hundreds of them. Um, there's about 50 amanitas that are deadly, 50 that are sort of hallucinogenic, um, then a bunch more that are poisonous, but at least half the amanitas are edible. And uh, there's a, a lot of good species. Um, they're pretty easy to tell apart if you pay close attention to them. Um, so, um, you know, for someone that knows the different sections of Amanita, they're, they're pretty safe edibles. Um, there's a lot of chanterelles in Mexico. Those are really good. Um, a lot of different species of porcini, uh, especially in the higher elevations. And, and those are really good too. You just nailed the thesis of our podcast to the doors of the state capital with that one. The indigenous people foraging for mushrooms and sustaining their livelihoods with the bounty of the forest is bona fide mycopreneurism. Whereas the prevailing slash and burn farming methods and monoculture are antithetical to the regenerative practices of foraging seasonal mushrooms and protecting the biodiversity on which these mushrooms are dependent. Keeping the ecosystem biodiverse and robust is a long-term game plan that over the course of many generations will return much greater value if properly managed. The slash and the burn and or monoculture model of economic production, which is prevalent down here, it turns around potentially huge profits on a short scale, but creates obvious and alarming consequences, both environmentally and socially, and even economically, the longer you stretch out the timeline of the project. I still find it so interesting that despite this massive presence of wild mushrooms throughout Southern Mexico, and an indigenous tradition of fungi used for food and medicine, which spans millennia in certain parts of the country, there is still a prevalence of mycophobia throughout mainstream Mexican society. We're certainly equally as guilty of the complex of mycophobia in the United States. If you Google wild mushrooms in Chiapas, one of the first and most visible stories that comes up from several sources is on a mushroom poisoning in Chiapas that left five locals severely ill. Yet there's little mention of the more than 300 different types of other mushrooms that are regularly eaten by the same people and have been for many, many generations. Have you noticed the same sense of misunderstanding and outright fear of mushrooms in mainstream Mexican society? Mm -hmm. Yeah, in general, Mexico is, you know, a slightly mi microphobic culture. Um, you know, it hasn't really reached the mainstream in most places, uh, but it really depends on where in Mexico you are. Um, you know, the Southeast, uh, there's quite a few mushrooms in the markets, but if you go to like Jalisco, um, or Michoacan, people are, you know, much more, 
you know, more fearful of mushrooms and they, uh, they don't eat them quite, uh, quite as often. And that's changing somewhat as the younger people get more into psilocybin mushrooms and uh, medicinal use is figured out and, and that sort of stuff. Um, but um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, United States is that way too. Uh, they're kind of mycophobic in the United States as well. Um, you know, there's uh, if people, there's random people see you picking mushrooms, they'll be like, oh my God, don't kill yourself. Let's talk about psilocybin for a minute. I've been flabbergasted by the meteoric rise of psilocybin and the popular consciousness and narrative over the last year in particular. Five years ago, there were, there were a handful of obscure journals and media reports that briefly touched on the psilocybin research being done at Johns Hopkins. But fast forward to today and ESPN, BBC, CNN, primetime and front page coverage is being given to psilocybin and medical professionals and scientists at the world's top research centers and hospitals and universities are almost universally praising the upside of psilocybin therapy. Why do you suppose everyone is just starting to talk about psilocybin and sacred mushrooms now when they've been a part of our culture for almost seven decades now? I think people are just starting to notice that it's pretty effective, uh, both for addiction and for uh, depression. Um, and addiction and depression are extremely common, um, you know, in every country in the world, and they're very difficult things to treat. Um, so, like, you know, de depression, the, the addiction is probably caused by depression. They're, they're pretty much connected because when people don't feel good, they will medicate with uh, alcohol or drugs or, you know, other sorts of negative behavior problems. Uh, behavior patterns, maybe gambling for some people. Um, and treating the root cause of the, the depression is difficult. Um, you know, there's a lot of medicines that try, but the medicines don't work for everybody and they don't work in, you know, in, you know, they're kind of addictive. There's a lot of problems with them. Um, it turns out that the psilocybin works for quite a few people. Um, and it just seems to switch off the part of the brain that causes the depression. So, um, you know, a lot of people start taking psilocybin and then they just don't feel the need to continue the heavy drug use or heavy drinking because they don't have the depression that was driving them uh, to use the drugs. So um, it's, um, it's pretty good for that. And, um, you know, just the depression in general, you know, it's like, um, it's, uh, it's really common. It seems like most people suffer depression for some part of their lives and some people have it uh, quite a bit. So I think um, it's only recently that people have noticed that it, uh, it actually does uh, take away depression in a lot of people uh, pretty effectively. Um, so uh, I think that that's what's driving uh, all the interest in psilocybin. So you've been involved in the world of mycology since 2001. And back then, very few people had any idea what mycology was, let alone participated. So intimately in it. It certainly had much more of an underground and offbeat subculture type of profile than the global phenomenon that we're witnessing today, as previously mentioned, with long overdue scientific and cultural interest being channeled into the world of mushrooms and millions of people starting to pay attention to mushrooms and their benefits to humanity and the global ecosystem at large. Has, has that been strange for you to adjust to seeing so many new people fascinated with mycology and coming into this space? Yeah, it was uh, definitely unexpected. Um, you know, I just uh, always, it was very much a niche thing. Um, you know, I started getting into it and 
Uh, it's really only the last couple of years that it's uh, really risen in profile. And I think it'll continue to get more and more popular as more people want, um, try to be more connected to nature. And, uh, and so I think it's a pretty good thing because it's, um, it's a really good way to get people outside and studying nature and learning about the world about them and <clears throat> giving people a reason to care about the, the conservation of forests and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I think it's really cool, but definitely surprising. I feel the same way. I've been heavily interested in mycology for over 15 years now and involved to varying degrees in mycological societies, underground research, etc. And now over the last year in particular, I'm seeing all kinds of people who never showed any interest before start to recognize the value and urgency of mushrooms as a solution to countless problems at a personal level and also across society in the global village. And that's music to my ears. We touched upon pretty much everything I wanted to cover today. So before we wrap up, is there anything else that you're involved in that you'd like to share with us? Uh, one thing I'd like to encourage people to do is uh, go out into nature more often. Uh, just go out with the purpose of finding mushrooms. Um, and if you don't see any mushrooms, uh, that's okay. You could also look for the plants and animals or whatever, but um, take pictures of them and uh, make sure you get pictures of the undersides of the mushrooms. Uh, ideally, like uh, clusters of several mushrooms, or you put several specimens together in for one photo. And then you can uh, upload those photos to the citizen science websites, Mushroom Observer and iNaturalist. And that creates a permanent biodiversity record and uh, you know, helps you remember what the mushrooms are and then helps uh, you know, the understanding of when and where and what they look, what they can possibly look like and all that sort of stuff. Um, so that's like something that just uh, regular people can do that's really helpful. Um, and so I spend a lot of time, like maybe an hour a day, identifying mushrooms on Mushroom Observer and iNaturalist, uh, just going through and you know pulling up all the mushrooms that haven't, uh, haven't been identified yet and putting names on them and stuff like that. Um, so that's, that's definitely one thing. Um, Right now, I'm working on a, a whole bunch of different stuff, um, but I have uh, you know a little D DNA laboratory in my house here, so um, I'm sequencing a whole bunch of stuff. I got about 60 PCR products in the, my freezer, so I need to do a few more and get 96 so I can send them off um, and uh, you know process all those results so I can figure out what I've been photographing. And I have probably about 5,000 bags of mushrooms here that need to be studied. And each one takes hours to study. So it's really a huge amount of work, um, but you know, it's pretty fun. And it's the sort of work where if I do it, people will definitely notice, but if, if I don't do it, nobody will notice. Um, so uh, that's good. Um, you know, there's definitely a plenty of stuff to do. Um, I started this week in a, a paper that's a, uh, a multi-gene phylogeny of psilocybe. So figure out how all these things are related and also uh, naming a new species of psilocybe that's turned up recently in Florida. Man, I'm so excited about this citizen science movement and, and in particular, the exploding interest in the world of mushrooms and mycology. The guiding ethos of citizen science and micropreneurism is that there are no institutional gatekeepers. The mods are asleep. Start cultivating. Start foraging, get lost in the woods with your camera for a while, like Alan. 
This movement is for everyone. There's so much research and so much innovation happening outside the ivory towers of academia and in the blind spots of the scientific establishment with the mushroom revolution. Get out there, micropreneurs. Stake your claim and tell us about it when you do. Hit up Alan on iNaturalist. Alan, thanks so much for coming on the Micropreneur podcast today. It was a real treat for us, and we'll be closely following your work. And I hope to see you down here in Mexico one day, amigo. You're welcome. You too. Good talking to you. There's so much to cover in the mushroom universe and so many micropreneurs leveraging the infinite potential of fungi to create a more ecologically balanced, inclusive, and equitable world for all of us mischievous little monkeys. I am completely stoked that you've chosen to spend some of your hard-earned time in our little corner of the microverse. Hop on the gram, say what's up, at Micopreneur Podcast. That's the handle. Don't get it twisted. We've got the full suite of social media up and running. Twitter, Micopreneur. Got the YouTubes dialed in, Micopreneur. Drop us a line. Tell your grandma and your kooky uncle. Tell your wife and your kids. If you're a Micopreneur yourself, you want to hop on the pod, by all means, willkommen, bienvenidos, welcome. Don't be a stranger. Let us know your thoughts on this episode. And also let us know what you want to hear in future episodes. This is a team effort. Thanks for stopping by the Micopreneur Podcast. Have a lovely day. We'll see you back here next week.